This week on the Backtable Podcast. Don't just be passive and consume information. Apply that information by, you know, having connections after you take the time to listen to a podcast. I don't listen to a podcast without then connecting with the people who are on the podcast and saying, hey, I listen to your podcast. Get the credit, take the action. I think having a bias towards action is a core part of any startup hustler. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Innovation Podcast. You can find all of our previous episodes on iTunes, Spotify, and Backtable.com. This is our next installment of the Backtable Innovation Show, where you will hear stories from founders and physician entrepreneurs who are helping drive healthcare forward through medtech innovation. Our listeners asked, and we have answered. We now have CME available. You can get AMA Category 1 CME for listening to Backtable and then filling out a reflection. You can find the CME links on episode pages at Backtable.com, or you can also find the CME links in the show notes. It's a small cost for the credit, much less than you would spend at a conference, and it helps support the show. Powered by CMEFI, using AI technology to bring the right education to the right place at the right time. You can do this in just a few minutes. If you're already listening to Backtable, might as well get a CME credit for it. Now, on with the episode. I'm very excited for our next guest, Doctor in Training, Shiv Gaglani. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by Dr. Aaron Fritz. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me on the Innovation Show. I'm really looking forward to this one and talking to Shiv. Awesome. Well, let's kick it off. One of the things I like to ask our guests as a first question is, you are a lot of things, but if you meet somebody at a cocktail party who has never heard of you, never heard of your company, how do you introduce yourself? The elevator pitch always was, hey, I was a medical student at Johns Hopkins, took a leave of absence to start a company that basically aims to train other medical students and other health professionals. But in recent months and years, I've actually been introducing myself more as the things I I like to do, like fitness, triathlons, things that aren't necessarily my job. And so I've been making like a concerted effort to kind of broaden my identity, which was really important because, as you know, we we sold last year. I'm sure we'll get into that. I didn't want my identity to just be CEO of this company because I'm no longer CEO of this company. I'm technically managing director of a company now. Yeah, that's so crazy. I mean, you've you've had such a journey. Let's start from the beginning. What was the early life of Shiv Gaglani? <laughs> How early do you want to go? Like true origin Wolverine story or? I mean, where, where was the first time you like, you know, put stuff together and like created something new? <laughs> Good question. So I've always been interested in science. Partially that's hereditary because uh, I'm Indian, but also my dad is a retired physician. My mom is a physical therapist and my sister is a dentist. And so between my family, they can treat anyone for anything. And uh, I'm the black sheep who mostly just does engineering and, and tech. That means you get less phone calls, though, so which is really good. <laughs> yeah, very few 3 a.m. Uh, midnight audio calls. So Exactly. That's been good for my quality of life. But my family, I was born in Africa to Indian parents, moved to Cape Canaveral, Florida, where I'm recording the podcast right now. Cape Canaveral is known for NASA and now SpaceX. So they basically grew up around all these amazing technologists, engineers, and then got very interested in the intersection of healthcare and technology. And so I started doing science research early on. And the first time I remember being like, wow, like if I did biomedical engineering or started doing tech, you could spend a lot of time building something that then long after you're done working on it, long after you're done existing in the world, could still have a huge impact on society. So 10th grade, I got involved in a project on organ printing, tissue engineering, to build replacement organs. I went to Clemson University to do that. And that was like my first foray into, wow, like building something that can scale, can really have a big impact and got me hooked on you know, entrepreneurship and, and research. Very cool. So 
even at 10, you understood scalability of products. That's uh, pretty impressive. Well, yeah, at, at 10, for sure. I, I saw that having used products, but this was actually 10th grade, lest, lest you think I was truly a boy genius. I mean, I do kind of think you are, but that's a, that's a whole different show. But I mean, that's awesome. I mean, so as you sort of progress, so you, you got this opportunity and then obviously went to college. What did you study in college? Yeah, it's true to form. I decided to do biomedical engineering and then a secondary or a minor in health policy, just knowing that I would be going to med school already. And so I was going to go to med school, but then wanted to do like surgical devices when I started studying. Yeah. So even when you went into medical school, were you thinking like, I'm not going to do the traditional route, go to residency and all that stuff? Did you sort of knew you were going to go into sort of a device or something else outside of clinical practice? Definitely. I mean, I, I knew I would be doing something in addition to clinical practice. Like I still want to go back and finish. I'm still actually on leave from med school, as, as mentioned, because, you know, I think you get some really good ideas seeing patients practicing. And that's at least what I've heard from physicians who've done it. But when I started med school, I knew I'd be like dedicating at least some of my non-clinical time to things like medical devices, health policy, preventive medicine, and then just fell in love early on with education as a way to do preventive medicine, which is how, you know, osmosis and other things were born. And did you have those ideas even before you went to medical school about sort of the ways that you could innovate in education? Yeah. So the summer before med school, I took a, a gap year. So for the first time, a lot of people are doing gap years before college or within college, especially with COVID now. But the summer before med school, I decided to take my gap year. And that was really formative because I started writing for a med tech blog called MedGadget, which I know you're into med devices and med tech. And that was great because I was basically being paid to do something I would love to do anyways, which was talk to really cool people who were building awesome things. So during that year, I started getting really involved in conversations like this with people who are making tricorders and smartphone-based medical devices. And then when I started med school, the first thing I did before osmosis was actually something called a smartphone physical, where the idea was, could we do a complete physical exam with a bunch of attachments to a smartphone. And smartphone was only three or four years old at that point. And so we debuted that at TED Med, and that was like the first kind of big foray into med device tech I did as a med student. That's phenomenal. Did you end up doing anything with that? We wound up debuting at a TED Med, traveling a lot. Uh, my friends, Mike Hoagland, who finishes med medical degree at Penn, and Mike Batista, who is a Hopkins biomedical engineering graduate student. So us three traveled all over the world. We went to Qatar, we went to LA, went to Chicago for these conferences where we did the smartphone physical. And then Mike Batista wound up spinning it off as a company I was involved with as well called Quantified Care, which scaled, got some customers, but then ultimately wasn't able to find a repeatable, scalable business model. So it did shut down two years ago, but it was a really cool ride. Yeah, we're definitely going to talk about that because, you know, everybody on these shows thinks the startups literally just like you have an idea, you get funding. It goes to scale and it gets acquired and that's just how it happens. People don't see the 95% of startups that actually are failing, even though they were good ideas, good projects at a decent time, they still don't. So, you know, when did osmosis start to come and what was sort of the impetus for that? Was there personal experience or your own frustrations with medical education? So it's interesting because, you know, Hopkins is well known as a really good medical school. And part of that reputation was formed in 1910 when a guy named Abraham Flexner toured dozens of medical schools in the U.S. at the time and wound up writing this famous Flexner report and publishing it where he talked about the standard of medical curriculum should be two years of didactics, lecture-based, textbook-based, followed by two years of apprenticeship. And that was the model. And that is the model for U.S. medical schools mostly. When I got to Hopkins, my co-founder Ryan and I sat in a lecture where they were still talking about the Flexner report as being like the best model for medical education. 
which in many ways it, it is good. But the fact that we were 100 years later still talking about two-year didactics when, you know, we already have physician shortages, is there a way we can take medical education, make it more efficient? Very specific example, my co-founder got a PhD in neuroscience before he even started med school. He went to Cambridge on a Marshall Scholarship. But both he and I did this time-based medical education segment of six weeks of neuroscience in our end of our first year of med school. He could have taught that class and, you know, he could have probably, you know, the fact that he had to do six weeks of the same stuff he had done two years prior, many years prior, it just seemed like a gross inefficiency. And so we got very interested in the idea of how do we use technology to create uh, better experiences and more competency-based as opposed to time-based medical education, which was the foundation of things like the Khan Academy. And as you know, Eric, we brought on Rishi Desai, who used to run Khan Academy Health as our chief medical officer as a result. So yeah, it was very much a personal frustration with how medical education was being done at the time. Yeah. And it's so interesting because Flexner was not a physician. He was a journalist. And so just to think that our entire educational system that we have had in the traditional sense was really from this Flexner report, who was a journalist who really wanted to shut down medical schools more than open them. You know, the number of medical schools shut down, like I think 170 medical schools at the time. So crazy, crazy stuff that the Flexner report really spurred on. But I'm glad that, you know, with innovations like this, that we're really reimagining how can technology change the way that we're getting this. The idea of the competency-based education, which was basically like, once you're competent, you should move on. Your friend should have been competent, you know, at, at the start, you know, so it's so crazy. So now you, you started medical school, you have all this experience going through MedGadget, and, you know, you sort of have this general sense like, this is a really good idea. What happens now? Where, where does that go? Yeah. And so we, we didn't start Osmosis as a business. We didn't intend for it to be a business. It was basically a side project where we're like, whoa, let's build this platform that makes learning medicine easier. So like, let's build this tool that'll help us and our classmates. And so the first iteration of Osmosis was actually me sending text messages with questions to my classmates, my friends. And they liked it a lot. So we were like, hey, what if we make this like a platform tool and let's crowdsource a question bank, let's add a mobile app. And so we wound up taking a summer, uh, we did neuroscience research together with a neurosurgeon, Dr. Daniele Rigamonti at Hopkins the summer after first year, but also on the side, we're building osmosis. And then we started using it. All of us at Hopkins Med were starting to use it for our exam preps and whatnot. And then we started hearing from classmates of our friends at other medical schools like Northwestern and Tufts who were like, hey, like we heard about this thing. Can we use it? And we're like, oh, maybe there's something here. And so we wound up doing a tech incubator in Philly called Dream It Health. And it was a great way to de-risk kind of a lot of startup incubators have de-risked a lot of startups because they gave you some seed capital. They gave us $50,000 to get started. They took a big equity stake of 8% at the time, which is big now knowing what, what we know. But it was the you know, first time we were in the startup scene and it was like a very low, low risk proposition to take a couple months, do this tech incubator. We could always go back to med school if it didn't work out. And then we wound up going from a couple hundred users at Hopkins to over 5,000 in a four month period. So we're like, oh, okay, this is legs. Let me take some more time to, to keep investing in this thing. That's awesome. So, you know, how did you, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, coming from the medical side of things that the business side of things is just a, a foreign concept. So how did you and, and, and Ryan like gain yourself that, that knowledge base of like, how do I create a business plan? How do I make this scale? Was that through the incubator or did you sort of do some knowledge gain on your own? Yeah. So this was around the time things like Lean Startup, a book by Eric Reese were getting popular, the business model canvas. 
So we started getting some frameworks about how businesses need to search for repeatable, scalable business models, right? And like, I highly recommend looking at some of these resources because, you know, we, we knew we had to build a good product. We were very much product focused because we wanted to build a product that we and our classmates used. But, you know, what's the role of competitors? What's the role of investors? How are we going to fund this? What's our pricing model? Are we B2C or are we B2B? Do we go to students or faculty? So all these questions, uh, we have theories about hypotheses. And again, he had a PhD in neuroscience. I was, had a research background too. And so ultimately, a, you know, creating a startup is like creating a hypothesis around what a business is and then seeing if the null makes sense or an alternative hypothesis makes sense while trying not to run out of money and, you know, make sure that you, you are able to pay the bills. And so I recommend that the tech incubator introduced us some stuff and then mentors. Mentors were key because like, remember we met two mentors who like immediately looked at how we were planning to make a revenue model, which was a one-time fee. You pay $50, you have lifetime access to this thing. And they're like, no, no, you, you can't do that. That's not, that's not a, and this was back in 2013. So they're like, no, you got to make it recurring. It's a subscription. And so we're like, okay, but why? And then they kind of explained, they've seen hundreds of startups and it's like, no, the subscription model is more attractive. And, and they were right, uh, you know, many years later, that's been really helpful for us. Yeah, that's a great advice. So when you looked at this subscription model versus licensing or, you know, this recurring, any other ideas of where you thought you might be able to think about how to create this business and, and scale it? We over-indexed very early on on, like we had, our hypothesis was that more, more med students were like us, like would have liked the platform. And the, we put a lot of engineering resources towards building a platform. When we really sat down and looked at the market, we're like, actually, all the biggest companies in our market are content companies, you know, ranging from Elsevier, which bought us and had, you know, Netters and Grey's Anatomy and textbooks, UWorld, which was basically a question bank with very little tech at the time, relatively. Everything was a content play, but we were trying to be a product play. And sometimes that works. But in this case, we're like, no, like we needed a content play. So that's where conversations with Rishi and the Khan Academy started, where we were like, okay, another trend is that everyone is learning in shorter form segments. They don't want 60 minute lectures, they want six minute lectures on YouTube. And so we started working with him and his team to create really specific medical education videos for not for high school students like Khan Academy was, but for medical and nursing students and found that content was king. And really that, that was what was a big inflection point for us was we went from a couple thousand users or tens of thousands with the platform to now we have millions of users because of our content strategy. So that was just another example. I have dozens of these types of learnings. And one thing that's key is that what worked then may not work now. Like there are some repeatable lessons we've learned, but also the market changes, the customers change. Uh, you know, if the smartphone didn't exist, our product wouldn't exist. If YouTube didn't exist, you know, osmosis wouldn't exist, that kind of stuff. You mentioned the accelerator, but where else did you get funding from? Because I imagine it required, did you go to friends and family? Where did you go after the, the accelerator? Really good question. So we actually, we were in the accelerator, there are 10 companies. We were the only company at Demo Day where we weren't raising money. And that's partially because my co-founder and I were like, we don't need to take a salary. We just wound up running on our savings. We had support a family and, you know, we're just enjoying what we were doing. So building a lot of sweat equity. So we avoided an early fundraising round, which was really helpful. Fast forward a couple of years later when we didn't exit. But then the first really major funding after the tech incubator was two and a half, three years later, after I finished business school, because I went and did an MBA. And after that was like, okay, like, are we going to be serious about this thing or not? And we became very serious about it. My business school professors were the first money in on a safe note, simple agreement for future equity, it's called. Very easy way to raise funding, seed or, or pre-seed funding. And then just kind of opportunistically started bringing on investors who could add a lot of value and more than just the capital. 
It was, you know, people who had done it before, people who had patent recognition. And then through that network, we got a Series A led by a group called Felicis Ventures out in San Francisco. So yeah, funding strategy is very interesting and I'm grateful how we did ours, but it's something that I know trips up a lot of startups in the in the early days. For sure, because you got such a short runway on that initial funding, you know? Yeah, and you, you mentioned you got your MBA during this period. How helpful was that while you're going through this? I'm sure it was helpful with networking, but just in terms of knowledge base. It was really helpful. I, I went to HBS and there were a lot of case studies, very fun foundational case studies on everything from marketing to finance. So, you know, terms like B2C, B2B, you know, uh, the five P's of marketing, which I still use in my daily work now, were really helpful. There's much cheaper and faster ways to develop this knowledge. You know, Seth Godin's MBA online, that kind of stuff. But the network, the network was extremely helpful. Like I can't overstate how helpful. I mean, it, it depends on if you can use a network. This was a great network to have. Like as I mentioned, First Money and were my business school professors. But then you know, even Elsevier, which bought us, their CEO is an HBS person. There are a ton of companies I've sold into that there was an HBS connection to. So that's been really helpful to get in the door. And then ultimately, you know, the product and the customer success has to speak for itself. But just getting in the door was this has been really helpful. Absolutely. I mean, that's actually a very common question that I get also. And, and I want to get to that in a second, which is, should I get an MBA is probably one of the more common questions. But let's go back to the timeline here. So you're you're in medical school. You have this idea with your buddy. You get a little bit into this tech incubator. You have this experience coming in. You know, where are you at in medical school when you start to realize, wait a minute, this this thing has legs. Like this is this is gonna go somewhere. Yeah. So we started med school in the fall of twenty eleven. And then we actually a year later, the fall of twenty twelve, decided to incorporate because we got a, a grant. We needed a place to put that money. There was a couple thousand dollars, which at the time was a big deal for us. So we incorporated, started a bank account, and then after second year of med school, we finished our preclinical, decided do we go into clinicals or do we do the tech incubator? We did the tech incubator. So when I go back and finish med school, which is part of the part of the goal still, I'll, I'll have another year and a half or so of mostly clinicals to go through. Was that a tough decision for you? I mean, I can't imagine deciding like, okay, I, I'm going all in. I'm, I'm diving into the deep end here. Like, take me back to that moment and sort of how you were thinking about things. Yeah, we, I mean, we did a pro and con table as, as many research people do or hyper type A people talk to different people. Luckily, there were other people at Hopkins Med, med students who had done left for tech incubators. It was a very special four years of Hopkins Med where every year for four years in a row, two med student buddies left and started a company. And we were like the third iteration in that. So we had, as is often the case, you don't think something's possible until someone else shows you the way, which is why reading is such a game changer. I'm sure you guys read a ton, like reading is a game changer because ultimately it just improves your perspectives. And you're like, wow, like I did not know people could do that or I could do that. And so we knew the risk was very low. We had, there were some founders, two founders who left, who dropped out and their company's doing really well. There were two founders who left, their company failed and they went back to med school. So we had both examples and we're like, oh, let's pick, uh, let's just do one of these things. So it wasn't that risky. My parents have always been very supportive. Obviously they, they still want me to go back and finish because I still want to treat patients if I can, but you know, I'm very happy with what we've done with osmosis. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so again, you know, what's your advice for folks who are wanting to get into this innovation entrepreneurship? You know, where do you think an MBA falls in versus getting, you know, sort of just educated? Because as you said, like understanding B2C, B2B, I find a lot of new domains is just learning the language, learning the lingo, trying to be a part of that community. That is really the most important aspect. So tell me back to sort of what made you decide and what your advice for others is. 
Like, I think the number one piece of advice for anyone is self-awareness is like as quickly as you can get the self-awareness, the better. And there's a lot of tools for that, like School of Life. I'm a huge fan of the books and the School of Life and the YouTube channel School of Life. I would joke it's my second favorite YouTube channel after osmosis, where there's a whole host of ways. And I did not know School of Life until two years ago. So it wasn't like I used this. But self-awareness is key because like, look, I know like my strength. I'm, I'm very good at connecting with people and just genuinely caring about them and connecting with them. And that's helped me with business development. It's helped me build a company. But not everyone who goes to business school indexes on that skill. Some are very analytical. They like spreadsheets. And so I think the faster you get to self-awareness, the better. And I knew that I wanted to leverage a network. And I, when I got in that HBS network, I really leveraged that network. So my advice really depends on the person. Like, what are you doing it for and why? And I'm happy, you know, I've talked to tons of physicians. Sorry, second piece of advice. It's never too late. Most decisions are reversible. It's like, okay, maybe you fit, you wound up finishing med school, finishing residency, finishing being a physician, and then you want a career change or you want to go into MBA or you don't want to do an MBA. You can do your first year of MBA and then drop out. Like it's very sexy to be a dropout at a, at a school. It's very on brand for entrepreneurs. And so I, I would say- I was going to say in tech now. <laughs> yeah. It's like you almost have to. And so I would say be you know self-aware, know what your skills are, why you're doing something, if it's playing up to your skills or not. And then don't be too worried. Like most decisions are, are reversible either because they actually are. Like I could always go back and finish med school or because, you know, life is long. I mean, I have a friend whose dad just finished law school at 79. You meet these people who are like, you know, they prove you anything is possible. And I just think those are the people you want to index on. And like knowing that you can do anything whenever you want is really freeing and empowering. You, you mentioned you learned a lot about marketing with your MBA. And I, I wanted to find out once you guys built your product or, your, or even your MVP, how did you go about getting in the hands of students, even at Hopkins, you know, in the beginning to, you know, when you were scaling it, what was your marketing strategy? How, what was your plan to get it in front of people? Yeah. And so luckily at Hopkins, there was a class of 120 and we were in lectures with them all the time. So I could literally just stand on my like chair and be like, guys, we made an app, like download this, please, or send out an email. So that was an easy kind of word of mouth thing. I de-risked it by like, you know, texting my core group of five friends and then they were like, oh, this is cool and started sharing it. So it was a pretty easy network effect. Uh, that's obviously a really proven way to, to market. I recommend Reforge if you're interested in kind of the state of the ways to market for very little money early on using inherent product virality. Reforge, a guy named Brian Balfour and Andrew Chen, who's now at Andreessen Horowitz, also just came out of the book called The Cold Start Problem, which, which goes into that questionnaire. But then when we went to the tech incubator, we we're like, okay, how do we go from a couple hundred Hopkins med students to like, you know, thousands of students? One of the first things they told us was, look, people have it backwards. They build a product and then they like, okay, if we build a product, people will come. We learned the term vapor testing and the example of Tony Shea, who, you know, unfortunately passed away recently, but he, he's been an inspiration both on how to market as well as how to build a good company culture. We use this book for that too. But his whole thing, he started Zappos and the big hypothesis he was trying to de-risk was, will people buy shoes online, right? Which right now everyone, people do it. People buy everything online. But back when he made Zappos, that was not, you know, that was not a, a slam dunk. It was a very big question. So he vapor tested and basically started selling shoes online. He didn't have shoes to sell. He just put up a landing page, put some AdWords or Google AdWords and Facebook ads towards it and did the unit economics. And it was like, okay, if I spent $30, I can get a customer who spends $150. It was a five to one lifetime value of the customer to CAC, I think around that. And whenever people placed an order, he'd go to Foot Locker, which was still a thing back then, 
buy that pair of shoes and mail it to them physically. So, and you know, there's, there's limitations. You don't want to vapor test too much. That's what Theranos seems to have been, um, especially in medicine where you don't want to promise and vapor test everything. But at osmosis, we put up a landing page. We said, this is coming soon. Here's a preview of what it looks like. And here's what Hopkins students are using. And then I literally joined hundreds of Facebook groups for different med school classes, you know, Case Western class of 2015. And I posted about it there and being like, hey, here's a landing page. And if you join and then start sharing it, you get up on the wait list to get this app. It was really easy. People just put their email in and then they're signed up. So we had thousands of emails before we even had the product launched for mass scale. Genius. Yeah. Were there any surprises or disappointments like in the early state, like testing those sorts of things out? Definitely. I mean, you know, you get a lot of, you know, medicine is not the most forward looking place. I mean, we talked about the flexion report and that's still the state of art for a lot of med schools a hundred years later. And, and that's for good reason. Like you don't want to get one report that hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin is going to, you know, save everyone and then over index on that. We've been wrong about a lot of things in medicine, right? There was a time when doctors used to recommend cocaine or smoking for asthma. So we've been wrong. And that's just the state of art and science that, that is medicine. So we had pushback early on from faculty and, and students. What are you doing? Like, what is this about? And so it can be kind of demoralizing unless you have find your, you know, have conviction in what you're doing and then find maybe the early adopters who are the customers who will help you. Another good book, Crossing the Chasm, which talks about that, where, you know, as you're trying to build a product, early adopters, index on them, find a thousand true fans or 10,000 true fans, which is something Paul Graham and others have written about, do things that don't scale. And then, you know, hopefully you have enough momentum at that point. But, you know, you just don't want to get discouraged by the mass, which is not ready for it. I mean, again, think about Uber's pitch. You're going to get millions of people to step into cars with strangers all around the world. And like, we all use Uber and Lyft now. So just kind of trying not to get discouraged because it's very easy. And that's where a co-founder is helpful. Because when I was discouraged, he, Ryan wasn't, or when he was discouraged, I wasn't. Rarely were we both discouraged at the same time. Yeah, that's great advice. And so along those lines, like tell us about partnering with institutions, because I know Osmosis has partnered with institutions. I'm sure that that helps gain some momentum. How did that happen? Yeah. So we have over 150 institutional clients now, like NYU and Kaiser Permanente, some really great med schools and nursing schools around the world. We also have some B2B partners, like life science companies like Novartis, Sanofi, 23andMe, Fresenius, uh, a lot of really great partnerships, YouTube and the CDC. And so we're very much a B2B company now, and that's scaling very quickly. So business to business. The first contract was actually at a conference where I was just talking at a conference and then someone at West Virginia School of Osteopathic Medicine saw my talk and was like, this is really cool. Can we do something with osmosis? And we did it way before we were ready to. Like there were some early, it's B2C is much harder to get traction, but then it's easier to iterate on that traction. But then if you can go B2B, B2B is very valuable. Remember how I mentioned SaaS or subscription companies are more valuable than non-subscription companies because it's repeatable recurring. Same with B2B. Like from a B2C perspective, we have 100% churn every four years for med school generally. Now we have continuing ed. We have a couple other things that are extending that lifetime value with our customers. But there's 100% churn because ultimately everyone finishes school, hopefully, or they drop out and they no longer need your product. B2B, you know, we have five years, we've been working with Russian Medical College, among others. And so we have huge renewal rates with B2B. It's more predictable. We're expanding cohorts, land and expand kind of models, but it's more demanding. So I'm very happy about how we did it. We kind of lucked into it. B2C has helped us with B2B in two ways. The first is it helps us now that we often get schools reaching out to us because they're like, look, a bunch of our students are already using your product. 
Or if we're reaching out to a school, we can just pull up a dashboard and say, look, a bunch of your students are already using our product. And so B2C helps you with that. But then it also helps you because there are a lot of companies that are only B2B and they solve the pain point for the not the end user. Like the person paying for it is not the end user. And so there can be this dichotomy if they don't really talk. And so that's why we have B2B products like Blackboard, which is a learning management system that a lot of schools bought, but the students hated the experience. And that allowed Canvas to come in with a very nice, positive student and faculty experience and basically eat Blackboard for lunch because they were getting renewals with these B2B customers that really liked them because they had this strong B2C brand. And so that's the position we're finding osmosis in where like we weren't 100% B2B, we aren't 100% B2C, and we found this nice balance. And this is where companies like Udemy, the guy who started Pluralsight was an angel investor in osmosis. Aaron Sconner is his name. All these companies I've spoken to have done the B2C to B2B switch over time. But again, that's just one model. Uh, there's a lot of companies that go straight B2B other companies that just stay B2C for a long time. Yeah, I mean, that's a repeatable model and there's a reason why that is. But I want to ask one question, a little bit more about content, working with institutions, then we'll get to scaling, hiring your team and acquisition. It's going to be sort of the next phase of that. As we talked about, medical schools and institutions are very slow to innovate. You know, many schools still have the same traditionalistic mechanism that they had 100 years ago. And bringing in new technology, even hiring a new LMS is a huge investment and they never want to give that up. One thing I've found is that content is golden and everybody thinks that their content is the best content. And so I don't know if you're familiar, but there was a project Evergreen that was some years back that was started with some of the Ivy League schools. And the Ivy League schools came together and they said, it's so stupid that you spend so much money and so much time creating this content that we should just have us gather our experts, create that content and distribute it out to those 10 institutions. Well, it failed because everybody thought that their institution was the best. And so they didn't want to use anybody else's professors. So when you approach these institutions with your content and they say, well, we have a curriculum, our medical students are using our curriculum. How do you argue against that? How do you say, well, this is, this is what it is. You know, we're not replacing, we're sort of augmenting. You know, how does that conversation go? It's a really insightful question, Eric, and uh, definitely something we've had to think about a lot over the past few years. So. I think number one is you don't want to alienate customers, right? You know that a lot of these schools, they have faculty committees, like you don't try and replace faculty. If anything, our pitch was, we want to augment what your faculty do, right? People go to University of Michigan Med School, not because they want an hour long lecture from a basic science researcher on telomeres, but they want to learn from some of the best clinicians and researchers in more active learning settings. So the trend was going towards active learning. And so let's take your 60 minute lecture that you're paying faculty for, make that shorter with osmosis, 10-minute pre-lecture or replacement lecture, and then help you turn that into an active learning, problem-based learning or case-based learning session, right? And so that was one of the pitches. We work with a lot of new med schools that already from the ground up hire fewer faculty, hire or already have three-year curricula, active learning curricula. And so that's been really helpful where we work with schools that are starting from the ground up. And there's a lot of them that are, have been starting because of the physician and nursing shortages that we see all over the world. And so those we do really well with. And then we also partner with the faculty. So, you know, a lot, we have a huge, like any content driven company, we have a huge bench of contractors who are often the faculty and the deans at these different schools that we work with. Sometimes it's, we work with a school and then we recruit faculty and deans from those schools to work with us. Sometimes we just work with the faculty and deans and then eventually work with the school. So there's a whole host of ways we do it. But the number one thing is to approach every conversation with empathy and not be too 
egotistical. It's very easy to be like a straight, like a hotshot entrepreneur being like, you guys are doing it wrong. Like stop what you're doing, like do what we do. That's never a way to win. I think to win business because it's just, it's also just not a good way to conduct business because you're, you're alienating people who eventually you want to partner with. And also you're walking in with an assumption that you understand their problem and that their problem is not unique. And that's never really the case. I always encourage our team to always ask lots and lots of questions. You should be asking more questions than you're talking about. Totally. Yeah. So you clearly weren't out there on all these phone calls selling to, you know, you, you had to build a sales team, right? And you had to build a marketing team. How did you go about doing that? Was it part of your network? Can you talk to us a little bit about scaling and hiring, you know, getting those A players on your team? First, I would say 20,000 registered B2C users we got. And then the first first 15 to 20 med schools we signed, I was involved in all of those. And so I will say that's really key because, I mean, also we took a while to do it. So now if I start a new company, I would be probably a little faster to hire some some people. But But I still think it's really important for the founding team to truly understand the customer problem. Like as, as Eric was saying, like the empathy is so, so critical. But then hiring the team, it all comes down to relationships. And I mentioned like, that's the number one thing I index on is like, how do you treat customers like teammates and teammates like customers? And so for, for us, you know, it was me and my co-founder for a couple of years and we recruited some friends to like start hacking with us on different things. But then ultimately it became, you know, like Rishi, who's our chief medical officer, I brought him on. Initially, we were looking to partner with Khan Academy and I got to know him and we became friends. And then an opportunity presented itself where Sal wanted to focus on K-12. Rishi wanted to go deeper in medicine and nursing. And then it made sense because we maintained a good relationship. We weren't competitors. We were competitors in some ways, but I never treated them like a competitor. We wound up partnering. And that's like kind of why we partner with Picmonic. We work with, I was just on a call with the head of medicine for Lecturio today. Peter Hornoffer is a great guy. I regularly messaged Majid at Amboss. Like, we're all kind of trying to solve the same problem. And the more people who are making awesome products for healthcare education, the more clinicians we're going to have, the more uh, informed and engaged patients we're going to have. So I'm a big fan of like collaboration, not competition. And that also helps with hiring. So some of these companies failed and then people decided to leave those companies and join Osmosis. Or my first marketing hire came through an advisor, Kathy Charlton, who was at Kaplan, again, a competitor at the time, who then recommended this awesome rock star. We have Diana Stanley on our team, who's our head of marketing and scaled with us for five years. Our head of sales also came through the same connection. Uh, his name's Andy Mendelson and really helped us scale from, he joined us right at the beginning before COVID started. We had 40 institutional clients. Now we have over 150, as I mentioned. So he's overseen a, a sales team that he helped recruit and grow along with our VP of people, Hillary, and now our COO, Derek. So I would say that's number one is like tap into your networks, treat everyone like a potential collaborator or teammate because they could be, as opposed to a competitor being too standoffish and then treat them really fairly. So Shiv, why don't you tell us how you connected with Elsevier? Were you on their radar? Were they on your radar? How did that kind of click? And were there other potential choirs in the picture? Yeah. So actually eight years ago, when we moved to Philly for the Dream of Tech Incubator, I reached out to Elsevier about partnering on content because at the time we were still just a platform. That's why I was talking to Rishi at Khan Academy. And then I reached out to Elsevier I met two wonderful people at Elsevier who are still there, Kathleen Reed, who does sales and commercial development, and uh, Madeline Hyde, who does the content. And they actually licensed netters to us way back then. So we became friends and, and got to know each other then. Then we wound up taking, I went to business school, raised the money. Selling was not on the table for us for some years, but we kept in touch. We kept friendly. And then as we kept growing, 
you know, osmosis, you know, they saw that a lot of their clients already were using us and the students were raving about us. And so we reconnected and it meant a lot to me that Kathleen and Madeline were still at the company. I was like, wow, this is a company that hires great people and then keeps them somehow. So I want to know what they're doing. And that was a big part of our decision to, to sell was we could have raised a Series B. We had three term sheets for a Series B. We could have done a majority investment. We could have were very have high gross margins. We could have run profitably ourselves. But then really for three reasons, we decided to sell. Number one, the vision. Our vision is everyone who cares for someone will learn by osmosis. And our big hairy audacious goal is that we want to educate a billion people by 2025. Clearly, there won't be a billion doctors and nurses by 2025. We do a lot of patient education. And so to join a company that already has 8,000 employees globally, that has already, they acquired complete anatomy two years ago and translated that into Spanish and Mandarin two years later. They grew from a couple, just over 100 B2B partners to hundreds of B2B partners in two years. So there was a track record where like, wow, if we join this company with more resources and expertise, more content, we could maybe go from 50 million unique people we've educated at this point based on YouTube, Wikipedia, uh, osmosis, where our content lives to hundreds of millions. So that was one. Number two was a team. There were a lot of options we had, whether it was raising money another other acquirers were in the picture that were interested in maybe making us more profitable, which is code word for cutting down the team. And it was just not that interesting to me to do that because, you know, unless we're very happy, happy for people when they leave, if they leave to a great company, like we had a, a data engineer who was with us for four years named Ashwin, who built our entire data infrastructure, who went to Spotify and it was the right move for him. We're friends. We check in still. It's been a year since he left, but we're like, you know, still friends and it, it was the right thing for him. So I think we wanted the team to leave on their own terms if they wanted to. Nobody's left since we joined Elsevier a couple months ago. And Elsevier has a track record, as I mentioned, with Kathleen and Madeline and all these people. Elizabeth's my boss. She's wonderful. She's been at the company 20 years. Jan is her boss. He's been at the company 10 years. It's like the rule, not the exception to be at Elsevier for five plus years. So it felt like a very good culture and it, it's proven to be that way. And the third was, you know, we had a bunch of early employees, early investors, our founders. We were sweat equity for a long time. We wanted to make sure that people got good returns on their risk profile, whether it was capital or time that they put in. And so we ran a competitive process. There were other companies in the mix, but it wound up for those three reasons that Elsevier just made the most sense. Hmm. Uh, any advice for other founders that, you know, when it comes to acquisitions, um, in terms of timing, you know, finding the right, you talked a little bit about finding the right fit, obviously culture plays a big part of it. The due diligence process. I mean, any, any pitfalls that people should avoid when they're, when they're in this process? So it's really hard to, uh, sell a company. I found like there's kind of the joke is it's a lot like speed dating at first that then very quickly turns into proctology exams, like very quickly. And, you know, and so we had great relationships. I mentioned like, you never want to treat a competitor. Like I could have treated Rishi as a competitor. And then like, he would never have wanted to work with us when he joined us a couple of years later. So Elsevier collaborator, Amboss collaborate, all these people collaborators, and just, it's your happier living that way. So that's number one, don't, don't burn bridges because people are around for a while and they wound up. I didn't think we'd be selling Elsevier, but we did eight years later and, and it was good that we had that initial connection. So that's one core piece of advice. Second is we did hire a banker to run a process because we wanted to be good fiduciaries for our board and our investors. And so wanted to maximize options. And so things took a lot longer. We thought wham, bam, we'd be done in three months. We had a lot of acquisition and investment interest and it wound up taking like nine months. It was a long process because we we're trying to run a business while selling a business. Third piece of advice, 
the saying is companies are bought, not sold, right? So there are fire sales and there's like, you know, companies like, like Newton, which unfortunately did not have a good outcomes, raised hundreds of millions and then sold for like 15 or 20 million. So that just happens. It's just luck of the draw. I mean, to some extent with market timing and do you find a business model, but ultimately we focused on the business and that was number one. Like if you focus on the business, you hit numbers, you have a product people love, people will be interested in your company. Hopefully timing works out for us. It did, but it may not all the time. So there's a whole host of other learnings, but even with all the things we thought were going for us and were going for us, it was a stressful process. And I, you know, I have a lot of empathy for people who go through that. Absolutely. So I, I have just a few rapid fire questions and then we'll wrap up. Are innovators born or bred? I think a lot of the skills of innovators can be bred. What are you reading right now? Well, I just finished Flow this morning and I think I'm going to be reading Island of the Lost next. What innovations in healthcare are you most excited about? Anything that drives consumer engagement gets people involved in their own health and that leads to more value-based medicine as opposed to fee-for-service medicine. And then the last question is, is uh, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are interested in getting into innovation, entrepreneurship, technology, doing the things that you do every day. Where do they get started? What's your advice for people who are thinking about this, want to learn more about this and are really interested in learning more? I think taking action, whether, you know, if you're interested in something like even now, like if you're listening to this podcast, you spend an hour of your precious time that you'll never get back listening to, to me yammer about things I've learned, like take the next step and add me on LinkedIn, send me a note, connect with the hosts that you have great hosts, Eric and Aaron here, take the time to connect with them. Like don't just be passive and consume information, apply that information by, you know, having connections after you take the time to listen to a podcast. I don't listen to a podcast without then connecting with the people who are on the podcast and saying, Hey, I listen to your podcast, get the credit, take the action. I think having a bias towards action is a core part of any startup hustler. I love that bias towards action. And I'll tell you that even being in this space and, and messaging people who I thought never would message me back, message me back within hours. I mean, the, this community is so rapidly growing. It's such a great community to be a part of. And I think just bias towards action is such a great message. With that, Shiv, I thank you so much for taking your time with us. And we really appreciate it. And uh, how can people find out more about you, and get in contact with you? Yeah, I'm, I'd welcome it. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm the only Shiv Gaglani, as far as I know, on LinkedIn or maybe in, in the world. And then I'm just Shiv at Osmos.org. But yeah, Eric and Aaron, really excited to connect with you both. Thanks for the opportunity to share the story and congrats on all the work you're doing too. Awesome. Thanks so much. Appreciate it, Shiv. Take care.